evening, everyone. Thank you very much for coming. Uh, welcome to the 12th LSE Kuwait Program Breakfast Seminar on the Gulf and the Global Economy. Uh, we're very privileged today to have two excellent speakers for you. Uh, the first speaker will be Danny Kwa, the Kuwait Professor of Economics at the LSE. He's also a senior fellow at LSE Ideas, a senior research associate at the Center for the Study of Human Rights, and chair of the board of the LSE PKU Summer School. Danny was head of the Department of Economics at the LSE between 2006 and 2009, and he holds degrees from Princeton and Harvard. His research focuses on the shifting global economy and the rise of the East. He is a member of the World Economic Forum Global Agenda Council on Economic Imbalances and serves on the editorial boards of East Asian Policy, Journal of Economic Growth, and Global Policy. He also served on Malaysia's National Ec Economic Advisory Council from 2009 until 2011, is the Tan Chin Chuan Visiting Professor at the National University of Singapore and lectures frequently on and in the Gulf. The second speaker is Alistair Newton, President of the British Society for Middle Eastern Studies, BRISMES, whose conference takes place in two weeks at the LSE, and Senior Political Analyst at Numura International PLC since October 2008, having earlier worked in the same capacity at Lehman Brothers. He is responsible for identifying, tracking, and analyzing political events worldwide which are likely to impact on financial markets. He has a signature periodical, Issues Which Keep Me Awake at Night, and he's the co-author of major studies on China, India, and North Korea, as well as numerous shorter papers. Before joining Lehman Brothers, Alistair was a career diplomat with the British Diplomatic Service. He's an active participant in Track 2 discussions aimed at enhancing economic and political stability across the Middle East and North Africa region, and a member of the supervisory boards of African Development Corporation the Council of Chatham House, and the Practitioners Advisory Board of Global Policy. Uh, both speakers will talk for about 15 minutes, and then we'll have about half an hour for questions. Danny. Thank you, Christian, and um, thank you all for your interest. What I'm going to talk about today is the Gulf and the global economy, but in particular, the place of the Gulf within the global economy. The way that Elster and I have divided up our topics, Elster will speak to you on the complementary issue, which is the impact of the Gulf economies on the global economy more generally. So there are three things I'd like to do in particular in this, uh, in this quick presentation. I'd like to talk to you, I'd like to give you, if we're going to talk about the place of the Gulf within the global economy, we at least have to agree on how the global economy looks like, what exactly is happening to it. So I would like to give you a quick look on that. Many of us uh, in our day-to-day -day businesses, activities, you know, we are necessarily caught up in one part of it. We're dealing with the Eurozone crisis. We're dealing with the, the economic and political gridlock in the United States. We're dealing with different kinds of imbalances in the economy. So I'd like to take this opportunity in the, in the short time I have to give, to step back a little bit and talk about how the global economy might be viewed to be changing from, uh, well, from a global perspective. And then I want to drill down and speak very quickly about implications for the Gulf and for Kuwait in particular. Having given you this global dynamic background, I'd, le I'd like then to raise some issues, some questions, which perhaps we can then deal with more in question and answer session is, what will make these changes, what will reverse these changes? Are the, are the ch impacts of these changes as large as we think? Now, you'll notice that in the, in the array of topics I'm going to try and get to, there are some really important gaps in, given the time that we're going to not be able to pick up fully. What's happening within Kuwait in particular? We know that there's been a massive change in the fiscal stance of the government authorities. 
We know that most recently, the central bank governor, with tenure of over 25 years, has resigned, and there are constant discussions about what all of that means. Um, and those are things that, again, I hope we can pick up in the context of the global economy. So to put things in that context, I need to be clear about, just so we're all on the same page, as it were, Kuwait and the Gulf have global footprints. But these footprints are of differing sizes. In terms of oil, energy, hydro, the hydrocarbon sphere, geopolitical interest, the footprint is massive. From an economic perspective, we need to remember that the entire Gulf generates about $1 trillion worth of GDP. That's about one-fortieth of the world. That's 2.5%. It's about one-twelfth of the United States. It's about one-seventh of the Eurozone. It's about half the size of the United Kingdom. That's just in terms of the economics. And again, to be clear, when I'm trying to be clear about what the different sizes of these footprints are, so we have a perspective as we take the discussion of the Gulf and the global economy forwards. There are some footprints that are massive in the world, as far as Kuwait and the GCC are concerned, and some footprints not so large. In global pools of capital, sovereign wealth funds, ADEA and KIA, and a range of other pools within the Middle East are massive, once again. ADEA remains the world's largest sovereign wealth fund, but there are other players as well. And of course, within the region, there's ongoing talk still about monetary union. Even now, in light of what the world is trying to learn from the Eurozone sovereign debt crisis. So, step back from this, I'm now going to try and talk about the global economy generally. And when we think about the global economy, what is, what the, the impact, the impression that I want to give the most strongly is, yes, there's lots of things going on, but there's also one massive change. And what is that massive change? The world used to be viewed according to the transatlantic axis. And humorously, people have put together cartoons like this one, about how the global economy looks in their perspective. Mm -hmm. Now, the global economy from this perspective might look like this. If you step off of the earth, if you step off the planet to try and think about what the global economy looks like, well, you can actually see global economic activity as reflected by lights, lights that, um, that light up the nighttime sky. And in a picture like this, clearly the transatlantic axis matters hugely. You see the huge cluster of activity in North America and in Western Europe. And, you know, fact of the matter is, while this international audience is no stranger to what the different parts of the world look like, for most of us, where I come from, the world is mostly dark in this picture. There's not a huge amount of the global economy in these other parts of the world. I have wonderful friends in Australia. I have to tell them I can barely register Australia in this map. But this is a map that's actually from 30 years ago, which was the last time NASA took photographs like this. NASA was kind enough to give me the database that allowed me to put together this picture. And the world has changed. How has the world changed? Well, in this picture, in the world economy of transatlantic axis, the global economy's center of gravity was mid-Atlantic. And it actually is. It's not just a figure of speech. You can go back to 1980, calculate the value that was being generated in over 700 different locations on Earth using Google Earth and a variety of other statistical database tools, and you can map what the global economy center of gravity was. And no surprise, from the perspective of that picture and the cartoon, it was actually mid-Atlantic. It was west of London. It was about halfway between 
New York and London pulled slightly eastwards by the mass of economic activity in 1980, that was Japan, and the beginnings of economic activity in India and the eastern seaboard of China. The question before us, when we think about the Gulf and the global economy, Gulf and changing global economies, what does this picture look like today? And what's it going to look like in the next couple of decades? Well, here's what it looks like today, and here's a slightly whimsical projection of what it's going to look like in 30 years. This is an animation that repeats the calculation that I did for the global economy center of gravity in 1980, and it does, redoes this calculation in three-year intervals. The dots change from black, which is the historical outcome, to red, which is the slightly whimsical forward projection. In every three-year intervals, the global economy center of gravity has shifted eastwards. By last year, the global economy center of gravity had moved from its traditional transatlantic base. It had traversed the entire length of the Mediterranean Ocean. Across the surface of the Earth, it had blazed a path 5,000 kilometers, three-quarters of the Earth's radius, to a point where, by 2010, it was east of Helsinki, east of Bucharest, east of Izmir, Turkey. Not yet at the Gulf, but in three years, according to this projection, the Gulf will be exactly where the global economy center of gravity is, and it's not going to stop. According to this projection, what will happen is that the global economy center of gravity will continue, and it does not, it's not a mechanical extrapolation. It's not going to shoot off of the Asian continent into the Pacific Ocean through sheer momentum. What it does is it stops, and by 2050, it ends up clustering on the boundary between India and China. Now, if I were to try and con tell people, here's how I think about this part of the world relative to the shifting global economy. This is the picture I would begin with. This is how the world has changed, and this is what we need to deal with, whether you're living in the Gulf, doing business in London, or wherever, you might, wherever else you might happen to be. The large fact that the global policymaking community needs to contend with is that very soon the world's economic center will be 10 time zones east of Washington, D.C., and that will be a massive disjuncture between the global center of gravity and the economic center of gravity. And as we see everywhere in the world, whether you're in Malaysia trying to deal with ethnic relations, whether you're in China trying to deal with political elites, whether you're trying to deal with outcomes everywhere else in the world, this disjuncture between global and economic centers is something that is pregnant with possibilities, both positive and negative, for our global economic performance. So where do we go from here? Well, what, we need, what I would like us to do is to engage in a discussion about how the Gulf, Kuwait, other parts of the world has to deal with, contend with, what are the dislocation issues that we now have to deal with in our trade relations and our policy relations against this background of a shifting global economy. But I would like to, you know, in the interest of time, I would like to save that for perhaps Q&A more completely, but I want to pick up a few points um, just in passing before I hand over to Elster. This shift in the world's economic center, is it good for us? Is it a bad thing? How do we deal with this? Well, there's one view of the world, the view of the world perhaps from Washington, D.C., in a stylized, caricatured way, that says all of this is really bad news. Not only do we see this disjuncture between economics and politics, what we see is that the world is imbalanced precisely because of these large shifts. The reason that the East 
the direction that the center of gravity is being pulled towards has risen is because they've become, they've engineered themselves into massive manufacturing machines. They produce way more than actually one might expect. And more important, they produce way more than their own people can consume. Domestic consumption lags, production is high, they're exporting to the rest of the world. The growth, the, the shift in center of gravity is actually something that's riding on the tails of massive trade between the East and the West, but where the trade is in one direction. There are exports coming from the East to the West. The West is paying for this through, through the East accumulating Western debt. But if the West gets into economic difficulties, as we see now from the political gridlock in the United States or Eurozone crisis in Western Europe, well then surely the East will also slow. The growth, the shift in the center of gravity that we're seeing is not organic, does not have its own momentum, and the entire world will slow because of this. And so we need to, again, rejig our mental compass to take this into account. Well, I want to suggest, actually, that that is not true, and that's how I'm going to use the remaining three, four minutes of my time. I want to suggest that growth, the changes that we see, actually are more deeply embedded than might at first seem from the perspective that I just described. Why is that? Well, it is true that when the transatlantic trend surveys goes to the United States and asks the United, asks surveys the U.S. population, over 70% of the U.S. population aged between 18 to 35 consider Asia, the East, to be where the future of their nation lies. However, that same survey also reports that by a ratio of two to one, Americans consider the rise of Asia a threat rather than an opportunity. And whether that threat is because of these global imbalances that I've just described, underpricing their manufacturers, destroying our industry in the West, that those fears are real. Well, I want to pick up these points and, then con so, and therefore conclude by suggesting that that impression is actually incorrect. Where does the world trade? Where does the world export to in particular? Germany is perhaps the, the Western economies, developed economies, strongest performing economy at this point, to the chagrin, I think, of many of its Eurozone partners. Euro Germany's number one export market remains the Eurozone. For a long time, the, the next largest export market was the United States. Both these large blocks of the Western developed economies are mired in recession. How is Germany continuing to be a strong performing, growing export-oriented economy? Here's why. About two and a half years ago, Germany's, export, Germany's exports to developing Asia overtook exports to the United States. Germany's exports to developing Asia last year were 30% higher than to the United States. Germany's exports to developing Asia are not just to China alone, but China is a huge player in this landscape. Germany's exports to China alone are now as large as Germany's exports to the United States. So thinking about that mental compass, if I had to draw a map of where the world trades or where Germany exports to, it would now be a compass needle that shifts, that shifted 180 degrees from going west now to going east. But maybe this is just happening in Germany. Well, the surprising thing is this is happening everywhere in the world, except for possibly the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom remains a slow-growing economy. 
its exports to developing Asia are a tiny fraction of what it exports to the United States. The United, the United Kingdom's export compass remains firmly Western-oriented. And worse than that, actually, the United Kingdom's export compass is firmly tied, for some reason, to the slowest-growing economies of the world. When you correlate UK's export share to growth in different parts of the world, that correlation shows up as minus 0.3, firmly so. But the United Kingdom here is an outlier, certainly relative to Germany and relative to Kuwait, because Kuwait's major export market now is developing Asia. United Arab Emirates, similarly, used to export most strongly to the European Union and the United States. Well, now it exports six times to developing Asia, what it does to either of these developed economy blocks. And it's not, maybe this is just oil and energy. Okay. I, would, I might repeat those, if I have more time, I might repeat the, those pictures that I show you for other parts of the world, but maybe this is just oil and energy. Because certainly, when you look at China or East Asia's energy consumption, most recently, it has gone through the roof. There is no question that growth in the East is impacting the global economy in this way. And so maybe what we're seeing takes us firmly back to the old picture of the world, trading hydrocarbons, and we can continue to rely on that. Well, maybe, but maybe not. This is a picture of China's energy consumption per capita. It certainly shows the skyrocketing most recently, but when you layer it against what the Western world consumes per capita, China and East Asia still consume basically nothing at this point. And a lot of what's happening in this reorienting of trade is not just oil, energy, and hydrocarbons. It is yet something else. So let me finish. Will the East slow before it counts, before it counts for anything, before it counts for global policymaking, before it counts for the Gulf? And there are reasons, there are good, strong reasons that a number of us in this room have also written about elsewhere. There are good, strong reasons to think that the East might slow before it counts. Investment in the East, in China in particular, is now 50% of GDP. Domestic consumption is weak in East Asia generally, not just in China. This Asian thrift idea driving the global savings flood. Does China have overbuilt housing? Uh, I want to suggest that actually all, all these are potential problems. So I want to show some evidence that suggests they're not as strong as, as what many of us might think. But where I do think there's real danger is in the geopolitics. And I will hand over to Elster on a, a more in-depth discussion of that. Because I think that at this point, the developed economies now are misinterpreting this global shift. We, as policymakers in the West, thought that we had gotten things right with low inflation and stable growth, whereas actually what was happening was we were importing low prices from the rise of the East. We in the West are quite happy to lecture sovereign wealth funds on their behavior. We tell them that they should not be concerned about national problems, national issues. They should seek only profits. At the same time that today, the U.S. administration tells Apple Computer and other large co companies to bring jobs back to the United States obviously violating this own dictum. And there's often a view that in the East, the emerging markets have now grown to a point where they are culpable, but they're not mature enough to be responsible. These are geopolitical concerns that data evidence will not shed light on, but that I hope that we can all have a subsequent discussion on. But just to pick up on the points, will the East slow before it counts? My bottom line is I don't think so. Why is that? Well, the East is not averse to consumption. This is a picture from Boxing Day here in London. 
And as you walked along Oxford Street and Bond Street, all the major shopping centers saw their front line of eager shoppers, enthusiastic shoppers, Chinese tourists. These shops report that Chinese tourists, East Asian tourists spend about three times on each visit what visitors from elsewhere in the world do. China's consumption is actually already growing dramatically in the rich parts of the country. It's only in the poor parts of the country that savings continues to be high. Put that another way, China and the rest of East Asia save a lot now because they are poor. On a per capita level, in a growth level, as long as soon as they become rich, domestic consumption will skyrocket. And finally, the point about Chinese overinvestment. Today, yes, it is true, China's investment per GDP, as a ratio of GDP, is high. But the reason it is high is it could be because the numerator is high, investment is high. It could also be because the denominator is low, GDP is low. And in this picture, a picture of per capita investment across different parts of the world, the line that you can barely make out on the horizontal axis, on the bottom, clinging to close to zero relative to what you see in Japan and the United States is China. China's investment per capita is tiny. It is one quarter of the United States last year. It is one-seventh that of Japan at the height of Japan's savings, uh, savings boom in the mid-1990s. So I, let me conclude and hand over to Elster. What have I done? I've given us a picture of the shift in the global economy. Some parts of what I've said are personal biases. I've given you an interpretation of what the evidence says. But the empirical evidence is public domain. Everybody can go and do these calculations that is firmly there. The second thing that I've suggested and that is more important, more strongly fo focused on the Gulf is the successful countries now, many of them export east. And it is not just hydrocarbons that they are doing. Germany exports a very well-defined class of engineering high-quality products. And the job for us in the rest of the world is to figure out what we can sell to the rich parts of the world, the, those parts of the world that are not at this point undergoing austerity programs. The place of oil matters here, but it's not hugely central. Everybody knows that. Every time I go to the Gulf, people say we're planning the post-oil Gulf. At this point, the outlines of that are not hugely clear. Abu Dhabi has made directions, not all of which has made steps in the direction of the knowledge economy, in the direction of semiconductors, electronics. Dubai has tried to move into services, high-value-added services. Not all of these ventures have been successful, but oil and hydrocarbons need to be rethought. But the most important problem about our fragile world at this point, I think, is the political and economic disjuncture. There's nothing we can do to stop the juggernaut that is the world economic center shifting. What we need to do is to rethink our international global institutions. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Jenny. Thanks very much indeed from me too, Danny. That set the stage nicely for what I'm going to talk about in the second half of my presentation. Um, I live in a world most of the time where uh, the long term is next week, the medium term is close of business today, and the immediate problem is what markets are going to do in the next five minutes or so. Um, and an example of that is what happened in the last 24 hours with the price of Brent oil moving four bucks down and back again. 
simply on the basis of headlines, first of all, that Cameron and uh, Obama had agreed to release oil from the Strategic Reserve, and then a denial from the White House that they had indeed reached an agreement. So I'm going to start by talking about the near-term uh, concerns around uh, the Gulf region, uh, and the obvious issue there is, I'm afraid, going to be Iran. And I make no apology uh, for breaking away from the GCC per se and talking about Iran today. And then I'm going to look a bit at the medium term. And the basis for what I'm going to be talking about is going to be oil, uh, because as Danny has intimated, it remains pivotal to the Gulf's role in the global economy today. But the question I'm going to pose to you, ladies and gentlemen, is is it still going to be pivotal in five, ten years' time, irrespective of the speed with which the GCC is able to move towards a post-hydrocarbons-based economy? Now, um, first thing I'd like to say is that as far as the world in which I live is concerned, in the last four weeks there's been a very significant change of focus. Fund managers are now much more concerned about prospects for oil this year than they are about the Eurozone. Now, we spent two years fretting about the Eurozone, and suddenly, because of a combination of some progress in Europe, we're by no means out of the woods yet, and issues revolving principally around Iran, but also around what I'm going to call, the, although I'm sure, like me, you will hate the term, the Arab Spring, uh, oil is now very much uh, to the fore of people's thinking. Now, I put out a paper on Iran this morning, which was published by my main employer, Namura. Uh, any of you who are interested in getting hold of that and who are not on my distribution, there's quite a few people in this room who are, uh, let me know. I'd be very happy to send you a copy. Uh, the bottom line is this. Uh, the probability of an Israeli airstrike against Iran this year does seem to be increasing. Uh, but we still think this is an event which is less likely to happen rather than more likely to happen. It certainly accounts significantly for the price of Brent crude today at $125 a barrel or so, which is well above our estimate of what it should be uh, based on global economic fundamentals. We'd say about a 20% uh, political risk premium around the price of oil today. Now, clearly... This benefits the Gulf countries, the oil-producing Gulf countries, significantly. For those who don't produce oil, like Dubai, uh, it has its downsides too. But for Saudi Arabia, for Kuwait, and for Abu Dhabi in particular, uh, this is a big booster to their potential to invest in the future of uh, their young people in particular. We're all well aware of the demographic challenges which this part of the world faces. And I mentioned the demographic challenges because that takes me on briefly to the topic of the Arab Spring, which has uh, now gripped us for the last 15 months or so. It's the anniversary today of the beginning of the uh, rather sad events, very sad events, which are affecting uh, Syria today. Now, so far, with the exception of Bahrain, uh, the GCC has not been seriously affected by the events of the Arab Spring. But I would like to suggest this. In my view, uh, and I think the view of a lot of other commentators, the roots of what started in Tunisia in December of 2010 owe much to perceived lack of economic opportunity among the general populace. And for this reason, I would argue, given their demographics, that the GCC countries still have significant challenges to face economically in integrating themselves into the global economy on a basis other than hydrocarbons, 
if they are to head off a medium-term risk of similar types of unrest to those we have seen elsewhere in the region. And for those of you who have not seen it, I would commend uh, as a, an interesting commentary on this a, a paper which was published a couple of weeks ago by Professor Madawi al-Rashid at King's College uh, on why there has been no Arab Spring in Saudi Arabia to date. Now, moving to the <coughs> medium term, I'd like to start, you, you don't get off scot-free at this stage, I'd like to start by asking you a question. Now, I've been asking this question of various audiences for the last six years or so in various presentations I've given, probably about 10,000 people in total. And of that, roughly eight, I think, so far have known the right answer. So don't be embarrassed if you don't know the answer to this. You will be in the majority. 9-11, um, the 11th of September 2001. I would argue very strongly that when history looks back on the first decade of this century, that will not be seen as the most important date of the start of this century. Rather, 12-11 will be, the 11th of December, 2001. Now, your exam question is, does anybody know what happened on the 11th of December, 2001? Join the happy majority. Uh, the answer is that China joined the World Trade Organization. And consistent with Danny's thesis about the shift in the global economic centre of gravity. I would regard that as being a particularly pivotal moment and one which in many respects underpins everything which has happened in the global economy since the imbalances, the loose credit, the subprime crisis, the demise of Lehman Brothers and indeed the Eurozone sovereign debt crisis. I, ne I nearly brought some slides along myself uh, and I'm, I'm going to actually send Danny a couple of slides because I have one slide which takes his 30-year perspective and it actually does it on purchasing power parity rather than on real dollars, which I suspect uh, Danny was using. If you do that same 30-year comparison on PPP, uh, in um, 1978 the Global Economic Centre of Gravity ran through the Great Lakes and today it runs through Chennai in India. Now, PPP, of course, is a bit of a cheat, but it's still a very indicative measure of spending power and therefore into the consumerism. I also have a thousand-year chart which shows how Asia's percentage of global GDP went all the way down and now is coming all the way back up again. Entirely consistent uh, with Danny's thesis. Now, since China joined the World Trade Organization, the price of Brent has gone from roughly 20 bucks a barrel to over 120 bucks a barrel today. Consi clearly a considerable boom to the Gulf economies, and I would regard the last decade as in many respects being a golden era for the Gulf in terms of inflows of capital into that region. Uh, we can debate in questions and answers whether the best use has been made in all cases of that capital, and clearly there will be question marks there. But given my thesis that the rise of the re-emergence of China is in many respects much more important than the events surrounding 9-11 and that what has followed that, the war on terror, has been something of a distraction, I would also argue that Barack Obama's recently announced strategic pivot away from the Middle East region and towards Southeast and East Asia is actually overdue in many respects. In fact, it's been happening for a while. Hillary Clinton and Bob Gates were arguing for a move of this sort even three years ago. But there are risks here 
America is, in my view, losing interest in the Middle East region as China emerges in the global economy. And I think you will see that process accelerate in the coming years. Iraq is a lost war already for America. Uh, yesterday, Cameron and Obama were clearly trying to race each other to the exit in Afghanistan, which for the purposes of this discussion, I will regard as being part of that region. By and large, the US does not really understand what is going on in the Arab Spring. It has lost allies. And despite its continued adherence to its uh, relationship with Israel and its concerns about Iran, you will see America moving away and potentially leaving a security vacuum in the Gulf region. Now, this was likely to happen in any case, but there is a huge game changer out there which is going to accelerate that enormously. And that game changer is shale, oil and gas. Now, I'm going to give you some numbers because it's always interesting to put these things in proportion. 60% of known shale oil deposits are in the United States of America. 60%. Um, 32 other countries do possess shale, um, but America is the big beneficiary from this new technology, albeit maybe with some serious environmental consequences as well. Um, According to the U.S. Energy Information Administration, the U.S. has 23.4 trillion cubic meters of shale gas, which is just a little bit less than the known natural gas reserves of Qatar, which has the largest natural gas reserves of any country in the world today. So you can see what this implies for America's long-held dream of energy security based on domestic energy supply. And what it implies in turn for the countries which are the major producers of hydrocarbons in the global economy today. Now, I'm not going to hazard what this means in terms of energy prices. Um, I learned a lot better than to try forecasting oil prices a long time ago uh, because I always get it wrong and the only consolation I have is I'm actually not paid to forecast oil prices and the people who are generally get it wrong as well. Um, I, I'm, I, I love this story. Bill Emmett, uh, the former editor-in-chief of The Economist, does not. Uh, but I always keep in mind that in 1998, three weeks after Bill took over as editor-in-chief of The Economist, The Economist had a front cover predicting that oil would never get above 10 bucks a barrel again. Uh, that was about two weeks before the oil market turned decisively. Um, so a warning to all of us, we can all make similar mistakes. Decreasing U.S. reliance on oil from the Gulf does have a major impact on the geopolitics of that region and will almost certainly have a major impact on the politics of that region. Now, clearly, as Danny has intimated, the region is in any case turning increasingly towards Asia. If we go back to Iran today, there's a lot of interest in the fact that Europe is going to embargo 600,000 barrels of oil a day, roughly, from Iran. Uh, that's the whole of the European Union, though. China can, takes almost that much itself. India takes uh, about 400,000 barrels a day. Japan and Korea sit in between China and India in terms of purchases from Iran. And you'll find a similar pattern for other countries in the region, increasingly exporting uh, towards uh, the east. Now, for all that, let's keep in mind that the U.S. is not the only country with shale. China, too, has shale. 
Not in the sort of reserves which the US does, but it does. So whilst the Gulf region will certainly continue to pivot eastwards in looking for markets and indeed suppliers, uh, and indeed for political influence, I would argue, it is not necessarily going to be a panacea in terms of their economy and to sustain oil prices at the sort of level from which the GCC has been able to benefit extensively over the last decade ago. Now, I'm going to finish with a quote uh, which you all know, are very familiar with. You'll recall that a few years ago, the then Saudi oil uh, minister, Sheikh Yamani, famously remarked, and I hope I've got the words right because he's often misquoted, the Stone Age did not end for a lack of stone. The Oil Age will, not end, will end long before the world runs out of oil. Well, I would suggest today, ladies and gentlemen, that thanks to shale, the Golden Age for the Gulf region may well run out before the end of the Oil Age. Thank you very much indeed.